So one of the simplest ways to acknowledge the humanity is by the language that we choose to describe the people that we are talking about. And one of my mentors uh, and, and one of the groundbreakers around criminal justice reform, Eddie Ellis himself, uh, had coined the phrase formerly incarcerated. And the reason he said that was because uh, we simply cannot continue to use the labels given to us by the same system that we are here to critique to describe the people that we are here to represent. Welcome to the Black Agenda Podcast. I'm your co-host, Devin Dito, along with my co-host, Adrian Guest. And we are back today, just like every episode, with another important topic. Again, continuing our kind of theme here. We've covered the war on drugs. We've talked about marijuana policy. And now we're going to tap into and dive into uh, prison reform. And so uh, if you don't know, the U.S. does currently have the world's largest prison population. And we've had the largest prison population uh, for some time now. And so we felt like this is, you know, coming off of last year and, and what was happening with, you know, what happened after George Floyd. Um, it's time for us to really kind of dive into this and see what we can do to maybe, you know, start to actually make some headway into reforming our prison system. And so uh, to discuss this topic with us, we're joined by Mr. Khalil uh, Cumberbatch. He is the current director of strategic partnerships for the Council on Criminal Justice. And so just to give you a little bit of background about Khalil, he uh, is a a nationally recognized former incarcerated advocate uh, for criminal justice and deportation policy reform. And so uh, before he got to the Council on Criminal Justice, he was uh, he previously served as chief strategist at New York's United for Justice and as associate vice president of policy at Fortune Society. And so uh, he was pardoned by New York Governor Cuomo uh, and Andrew Cuomo in 2014, and he went on to earn a master's degree and social work from uh, CUNY Lehman College, where he was awarded the Urban Justice Award for his work with underserved and marginalized communities. And so uh, just to wrap it up here, uh, Mr. Cumberbatch is also a lecturer at Columbia University. And like I say, he is currently the Director of Strategic Partnerships uh, for the Council on Criminal Justice. So uh, Khalil, we thank you uh, for giving us some time here on the Sunday. We just appreciate you coming on the show. Well, thank you guys for having us um, and for having me and really looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. And we're excited for this one as well. And so uh, just to kind of get into it, you know, before we get in into the meat of it, talking about mass incarceration, we kind of wanted to back up a little bit and try to dig into how we got to the modern prison system. Um, you know, really since the beginning of civilization, you know, using prisons is not a necessarily a new concept. I think we use them differently than, you know, early civilization where it was more so for putting people away if, they, you know, they were going to eventually be killed or sentenced to life or, or, you know, a life of slavery for whatever crimes that they had committed. But with the 20th century, we got this modern prison system that we have today where we try, at least the goal is supposed to be re- rehabilitation. You know, you know, you, you commit a crime, you go to prison, you serve your time, you come out a, a changed person. We're not really getting that done, but that was the original goal. So I guess, you know, our first question off the top is just, can you just give us a little bit of historical context into, you know, I guess how the modern prison system came to be? Like, what was the original goal? And then are we kind of off track as far as what that goal was with the modern prison system? 
Yeah, sure. No, that's a great question, Devin. Um, and, you know, there's been a ton of uh, research and reporting and writing done about, uh, you know, the initial kind of uh, ideological thought behind uh, the penitentiary. Uh, and that was largely linked to the idea of penance. That someone had committed or someone was accused of a social ill at that time. And that person was then ultimately put away what in what, what we would now refer to as jail. Uh, but the goal was simultaneously to make sure that that person was repentant, i.e. the word penance, for their quote unquote sin. Obviously, that is largely wrapped in some theological thought. Uh, but that was the goal initially. Um, but, you know, intertwined with that, they started to experiment with ways to kind of facilitate that penance. And one of them being, or the primary one being what we now refer to as solitary confinement, whereas extreme isolation person was given a Bible or some uh, 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 bibliological text to refer to largely based on the sin that they had committed or the sin that they were accused of committing. Uh, however, we saw uh, ver very early on in the 1800s that that, that that notion, that idea of uh, extreme isolation and this idea of achieving penance uh, really wasn't working. Uh, there was high rates of suicide. People were uh, suffering from severe mental illness, whether it was existent before or not. Uh, and you know, ultimately, it just wasn't giving the kind of goal that that uh, that the folks who were putting people in these jails were hoping to achieve. Uh, fast forward, uh, you know, into the 1900s, we now start to kind of get uh, a little bit more formation on, into what we now know as jails, in particular, which would mean that you know, crime is hyper local. It was hyper local even you know back then. Um, and what we would see is that folks would be held in jail for a certain period of time after they were either sentenced by a judge or saw a judge. Um, and it was in jails uh, that, you know, that that they started to move away from the idea of penance, but really still holding on to this idea that if someone had committed a crime or a social ill or a sin, uh, that they needed to be separated from society and held for some period of time. Um, you know, fast forward now into, you know, I would say the early uh, part of the 1960s, we really started to see this kind of rhetoric about uh, tough on crime and the need to be more harsher on penalties, uh, the need to have more harsher penalties uh, for crimes that are committed. Again, largely for the same reason that if we punished people seriously enough, if we punished people severely enough, uh, somehow that would ultimately change their behavior. And so this, this rhetoric of becoming tough on crime uh, really started to resonate uh, with voters in particular, but with the general public at large uh, in the early 1960s or so. Uh, fast forward about 20 years or so, we started to see the huge explosion that happened uh, because of the crack and cocaine epidemic um, that you know, we started to see that there was uh, coupled with this tough on crime rhetoric was this idea of war on drugs, that if we somehow tackle the drug problem, uh, that we would eliminate a lot of social ills that had existed uh, in communities, but particularly communities of color. And so, you know, it kind of became this kind of uh, a dynamic duo, so to speak, that politicians found to be uh, politically viable. They found that it worked to get them not only elected, but to get them reelected. Um, and the reality is that there were many communities that were asking for help from 
government, whether it was local, state, or federal, to try to prevent not only what they had been perceived then to be the war on drugs, uh, but also on this, uh, you know, the violent crime that were uh, 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 ultimately linked to this explosion of drugs in our communities. Uh, and then ultimately, you know, we reached to 1996, uh, where, you know, the infamous, the now infamous uh, uh, um, uh, uh, crime bill, I'm sorry, the 1994 crime bill, uh, and, you know, that, that uh, largely financially incentivized this idea of not only incarceration uh, uh, in, in prisons, but also long-term incarceration in prisons. And there was federal funds that were given to local municipalities and states uh, to build uh, not only prisons and jails, but also to uh, fund uh, local law enforcement, in particular state law enforcement, to, uh, to enforce uh, the laws that were being more tougher and harsher uh, for uh, crimes committed. Although we now have learned uh, that there were trends showing uh, that, uh, you know, that the 1994 crime bill um, ultimately exacerbated what we now call mass incarceration, uh, but that trend was already starting uh, uh, in some cases, even as early as the 1990s. I hope that was a good enough kind of <laughs> uh, history lesson. It's so much to cover, you know, because, yeah. you know, obviously within that answer, you know, there's, you know, there's not much time to talk about the overlap of, you know, uh, the notion of criminality, right? That, you know, that that notion changes over time. The things that were uh, illegal in the 1990s are not, are no longer quote unquote mm -hmm. illegal now and vice versa. Uh, and of course we, you know, we haven't even been able to talk about systemic racism as yet, which I know ultimately we'll get to. So ho I hope that uh, very succinct answer covered a lot of time in a very short period of time. It, it, absolutely. Uh, and, and as we say, at least I say a lot when I talk to people in personal conversations, you know, our public policy is, is layered. You know, one thing affects another, which affects another. And it's a very deep, complex issue um, with everything because you can't affect one thing without moving something else. And whenever we talk about this modern you know, prison system and we're talking about the fact that prison was supposed to be about, you know, uh, giving people some sort of punishment, you know, based on their sins and different things like that. You know, I think about the youth as a part of this conversation as well. And for the month of August, we're highlighting the organization called Choose 180 and they actually have a felony intervention program where they work as advocates for youth. And we also had the sentencing project on our show. And on their website, they highlight the fact that the U.S. is the only country that sentences people under age 18 to life sentences without parole. So when we think about our modern day prison system, the youth can't be left out of that. So, Khalil, for my question for you, um, what does this say to the future of our youth uh, when they're not really able to have some sort of rehabilitation? Um, they're not able to get you know, forgiveness um, for something that they may have done at a much earlier age when they were underdeveloped, but they don't get time to actually get back into society as an adult. Yeah, no, that's a great point, Adrian. Um, I think that that message um, that it gives uh, our youth is uh, twofold. Uh, and uh, what really changes the message is, you know, uh, a person's access to privilege, um, a person's access to uh, resources. Um, and of course, we cannot deny the role that, you know, race plays and gender uh, plays uh, in the way that that message will land on a person. So for example, someone who comes from a middle to upper class 
uh, neighborhood, uh, middle to upper class family uh, that have access to uh, resources, financial resources. If that person uh, at 15 gets pulled over uh, for driving erratically and has come to find out that that person is under the influence, uh, it is a very high chance that that person will get um, uh, not only second, maybe third, fourth, and fifth chances. And not to say that a youth at 15 doing that doesn't deserve those second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. However, if the scenario was that it was a 15-year-old uh, child of color uh, in a under in a historically under-resourced and marginalized community uh, that is also linked to over-policing, if that child is pulled over doing the same exact thing, uh, then we know more than likely that that outcome will uh, lead to uh, either a more harsher penalty or a more harsher sentence. And that you know that is the same whether we talk about drugs. Uh, 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 crimes of poverty or crimes of circumstance or even violent crime. So I think that, you know, the answer, again, it really does matter uh, into a person's situation. However, I think that uh, what I would, what, you know, as for a person like myself, someone who was, uh, someone who grew up in, uh, at one point, uh, a neighborhood that was um, feeding uh, almost uh, you know, that had a role in feeding almost 70% of the New York state prison system. So I grew up in Southside Jamaica, Queens. Uh, there's a historical study that shows that Southside Jamaica, Queens, uh, which was a community that was uh, ravished by the, the drug and crack epidemic in particular of the, uh, uh, of the 80s and the early 90s, uh, that neighborhood with six other neighborhoods in the five boroughs of New York City was feeding almost 70% of the New York state prison system. And what that means is that, you know, that, that those neighborhoods, again, were historically uh, under-resourced, historically marginalized, have high rates of, you know, um, high school dropout, high rates of unemployment, uh, the school system suffers severely. And so we have all of this kind of, you know, concoction that is, that, that ultimately becomes a perfect storm uh, for, you know, the justification of over-policing. And what we saw in those neighborhoods, especially as a youth growing up, um, the reality is that, you know, interaction with the police um, was, uh, was something that happened on an everyday basis, honestly. Um, and uh, 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 interactions with the criminal justice system because of those interactions um, were something that were, was very commonplace. Many of the people uh, that were older than me and growing up in that same neighborhood, it was very common uh, for them to go away for the summer, you know, and, uh, and, and ultimately what that meant was that they were either serving a jail sentence or, the, or they were serving a prison sentence. And a lot of the, you know, what we would now call the OGs, the old heads, uh, they were, you know, uh, they, they were people who served, you know, one, two, sometimes three prison sentences. And so, you know, for myself growing up in Southside Jamaica, Queens, prison uh, to some extent, was viewed as just a kind of natural part of the evolution of a young of a young colored man growing up in a very tough neighborhood. And and honestly, that's terrible. Uh, whenever you whenever you say that, um, it makes me think about whenever I was in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, I was in the Binghampton area doing some mentorship programs for youth about 15, 16, I think maybe even 14. And we were talking about, you know, 
envisioning what they want to do for their future. But for them, it was just survival. You know, it was just living day to day, just trying to make it. It wasn't about trying to go to college or be an entrepreneur. So whenever you say things like that, it's just very reminiscent of that, where uh, we've got a lot of minority communities, especially us of, of color, um, who just really don't get a, a fair shot uh, of opportunity in America. So uh, thank you, Khalil, for really uh, starting us off. Really, really great conversation here. Um, listeners, we're going to give you your first break and we'll come back into our second segment. So stick with us. We'll be right back. We absolutely appreciate your support. You are the foundation and our efforts work to better your communities. Tell your family and friends so we can all work to bring progress. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, welcome back, listeners. So we are continuing our conversation with Mr. Khalil uh, Cumberbatch. Uh, again, he is the director of strategic partnerships for the Council on Criminal Justice. And so, uh, so Khalil, in the first segment, we really talked a lot about just kind of the history of the modern prison system, how we got to where we are today. And you touched on it, uh, which is the war on drugs had a big reason. You know, it was a big factor in why the prison population has ballooned since really the 1970s and onward. Um, and a lot of people, you know, in one of our interviews, somebody called it the war on black people instead of the war on drugs is probably more appropriate uh, because like you say, you know, it was a, an executed game plan against one group of people criminalizing their behavior for everything. And then not only that, they were also, you know, sentencing them to these incredibly long sentences, keeping them them in there longer, despite the fact that we already had evidence, you know, that it wasn't going to work. And so uh, one of the other factors too, in this prison boom was the fact that private prisons started to become popular, you know, after this, the war on drugs started, uh, you know, the first company, uh, Corrections Corporation of America was actually the first uh, prison, you know, private prison company that popped up in 19, uh, in the 1980s. It was the very first one in America, but also the very first one in the entire world was the Corrections Corporation of America. And from that point on about 1980 and onward, you saw the, the use of private prisons increase. And immediately, I think you also started to see issues start to arise with what was happening in private prisons. And so I guess if you could, for our listeners, just kind of explain the rise of private prisons and why they were such an attractive option, you know, for, for local municipalities and, and police departments, and just kind of maybe give, you know, a few differences between a public prison and a private prison and why that's a, a big you know, a big focus of our reform efforts. Yeah, sure. No worries. Um, uh, where to start? I mean, you know, private prisons, um, uh, you know, the allure for private prisons is, uh, you know, when you think of it, uh, if, if you think of it from a capitalist perspective, um, uh, it is a kind of dirty solution uh, because, you know, the, the issue of incarceration itself is not going to be uh, uh, one that is solved very easily. And so if you outsource that dirty solution uh, and you can uh, essentially wash your hands clean, so to speak, of whatever happens to people once they go inside of a prison system, 
you know, you can kind of begin to understand why it would be a little bit more appealing. Um, from a uh, from a business perspective, I think that um, that the Correctional Association of America said to themselves, you know, this thing called incarceration is not going to go away anytime soon. Um, and if we can find a way to monetize it, uh, then, you know, we could become a very viable solution again, you know, to um, to a uh, to, to a problem uh, that most electives don't know where to begin. And most of them don't care on where to begin in terms of, you know, serious solutions, looking at the real drivers of crime, which all too often are not issues that exist within prisons and or jails, meaning that they are social issues. Um, and so, um, you know, I think that uh, see, uh, the Correctional Association of America took, you know, they kind of took that position very early on. Um, but I, I will say that uh, private prisons uh, really kind of started the first contract that C, uh, that the Correctional Association of America got uh, was to manage an immigration detention center. And so again, you know, we can't, uh, you know, as you mentioned in the beginning with my bio, uh, you can't uh, really have a conversation about mass incarceration without at the same time acknowledging this issue of mass detention and mass um, deportation. They uh, inevitably go hand in hand for various different reasons. And this is just another example of that, right? Um, and, and so I just wanted to kind of point that out to the listeners that, you know, when we talk about prison and jails, we also have to think about the issues that exist, which all too often are the same issues within immigration detention centers. Um, another point to keep in mind is that although, you know, private prisons are undoubtedly bad, um, they only represent a very small portion of the overall prison system within this country. Uh, the thing that is uh, the most upsetting for most people when they hear about private prison, again, is the monetization of someone's incarceration and their entire experience during that incarceration. Now, um, the reason why experience, a person's experience within a private prison varies dramatically from that of a person who's serving a prison sentence in a publicly funded prison is because uh, the oversight is much different. And in many cases, private prisons have very little to no oversight. And if oversight does exist, the accountability is very little. And the driver for that all too often is how do you maximize profit? And we all know from a business perspective, the first way to maximize profit is to limit overhead. And so things like bars of soap, things like towels, things like clothes, things like sanitary water, things like a viable commissary, things like, you know, uh, good food for people to eat. All of that stuff immediately gets scratched all too often by many private prison companies. Um, and so, you know, we have to keep in mind that all of those um, issues with private prisons that anger people, that get people riled up and they say, you know, private prisons are bad and we should eliminate them. They should undoubtedly keep that focus on private prisons, but they should also understand that the privatization of many other things, even in public prisons, um, is also done by many of the same companies. And so, for example, in many states, the commissary items that are sold is all a part of private business. 
the telephone services and now the video streaming services are all too often owned and 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 provided by private companies. Transportation uh, in many places across this country, especially if a person is being transported from one state to the next for various different reasons, all too often are owned by private companies. And so the point being is that, yes, the privatization of prisons we should be angered about and we should be concerned about. We should keep that same energy when we think about you know, public prisons in the sense that, you know, our families, our loved ones, our communities, and ultimately people who are incarcerated are being negatively impacted by the same kind of, you know, profit-driven, price-gouging, cap, you know, kind of greedy mentality that exists uh, uh, with private prison companies that also exists with the privatization of other aspects of incarceration. No, I mean, that's that's a great point. And I appreciate you pointing out those differences, but also how they are a small part of the overall prison, um, you know, penitentiary uh, population, you know, as far as the number of prisoners who are actually in private prisons is pretty small, but there are some horrendous conditions too, not only in private prisons, but in public prisons. I think even last year we had touched on, uh, I think it's called parchment in, in Mississippi, where they were having all sorts of issues, COVID outbreaks last year, um, they made the news. It's one of the worst prisons probably in the country, definitely the worst one in Mississippi for sure. And it just seems like there's like a, you know, you were talking about it earlier. The the purpose of prison was to put people away, make you kind of, you know, pay for your sins and come out and be a different person. And I feel like now we've gotten to a point where there is so much money moving around that we're not focusing on getting the end goal. And people don't care. Like there's an attitude out here. I feel like in society where it's just like, you messed up, you made a mistake, you go away for five, 10 years. Why do you need good water? Why do you need good food? Why do you need commissary and streaming services and books and these things? It's like, we just kind of, you know, sometimes when you say somebody's going to jail, it's just like this fantasy world where they just kind of disappear and nobody really cares how they're treated, what they eat, if they're taken care of. And so just kind of talk a little bit just about how society has really just kind of, you know, turned a blind eye to how we treat people, you know, in prison, even though they've made mistakes. I don't, I just don't agree with just saying, hey, you deal with it. You get, we get to treat you like whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, at, at the core of that question is, is really about, uh, you know, how much work are we willing to put in? Uh, how much hard work are we willing to put in? Um, how much public education are we willing to do? How much forgiveness are we willing to expound uh, when we talk about uh, someone who has committed a crime, uh, who is ultimately sentenced to some term of prison? Um, and, you know, I think that uh, there are a lot of people in this country for various different reasons um, say very much like what you said, Devin, which is if you, if you can't do the time, then you shouldn't do the crime, crime. right? I mean, that yeah. old saying uh, from the 1980s, um, which again, you know, uh, if, you know, if we saw that uh, punishment was doled out equally across race and gender, um, uh, then, you know, maybe, maybe that argument could have some validity, but we know for a fact that if we go in any jail or prison across this country, that we will see racial disparities that exist very blatantly. And what that means is that it is overwhelmingly, even in some of the most 
uh, uh, whitest states in this country in terms of its population, in terms of the percentage that black and brown folks hold in those states, uh, you will still see when you go into prisons in those states that the population is overwhelmingly black and or Latino or Latina. Um, and, you know, so, so this whole notion of, you know, punishment being doled out and, you know, if you did the crime, then you have to do the time. We know that that's not the case. And we know that if it's a black or brown person, that, 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 that is undoubtedly, that is undoubtedly not the case. And that all too often the punishment is all too often more severe. Um, in terms of, you know, how the public perceives people who have um, committed crimes, I think that, you know, that, that this conversation is really linked to the way that people consume information, the way that people perceive a person who is a, a, a quote unquote guilty of committing a crime, whether they're legally guilty or not. Um, and so, for example, you know, when you, when you ask the average person, you know, when you think of the term criminal, what do you think of? Who do you think of? When you hear the term criminal, what is the person that is being perceived in your mind? Is it a young person of color? Is it, you know, is it, uh, is it someone uh, like Martha Stewart? Or is it someone like Robert Downey Jr.? Is it someone like, you know, the slew of other folks that we don't even associate them being convicted of a crime? All too often, the answer to that question is no. And we have to ask ourselves, on a deeper level, where do we get that kind of notion that a person who is undoubtedly guilty of a crime or criminal activity has to be largely a person of color? And if you dig deep enough, and if we're honest enough with ourselves, even some of your listeners now, when they hear this, you know, how many are willing to admit the first thing I thought of was a young man of color who fits, who is in a certain age range, who looks and acts and listens to certain things in a certain way. Most of them are not, you know, if you're not willing to kind of grapple with that, then how are we going to fight back on this narrative that if a person commits the crime, they have to undoubtedly do some level of prison term. You know, we have to get to the point as a country where we're willing to ask ourselves, you know, what is it that's really needed in this, um, in this process for everyone to be satisfied? Not only uh, the person who, uh, who had received harm, uh, but also, you know, what is it that the community needs? What is it that society in general needs? And, and what is it that ultimately, yes, what is it that the person who is guilty of committing a crime what is it that that person needs to make sure that when they come out on the other end of this experience, um, that they have all of the tools that they need uh, to be successful? Um, and the reality is that while we have gotten to a point as a country where we have gotten much better with acknowledging the issue of mass incarceration in our country, we are far from getting to the point where we understand that every single crime that is committed, every single wrongdoing that is committed, that, that prison is not always the logical answer to solve that problem. We're light years away from that, uh, but we are trending towards that way. And how do we know? For example, you can't go on you know, any streaming service. You can't um, go to, you, know, you can't 
uh, uh, hear of any kind of movie being made over the last few years and inevitably not hear about something talking about the criminal justice system, whether it's an ill that is exposed or whether it's a success story that is highlighted. And what does that mean? That that conversation, that topic is becoming a part of the national narrative that as a country that is guilty of mass incarceration and is still the world's leader in incarceration, that our media is now taking a stance and saying, we need to highlight some of these wrongs, some of these ills, and ultimately some of these success stories. Um, but again, you know, we, we, we're far, far from being the country that is willing to uh, 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 deal with um, some of the deeper social issues that exist that lead to crime, but also, you know, that we're not really well trained as a country in forgiveness. Um, and, you know, that a lot of that stems back to the history, to the founding of this country. Um, but a lot of it has piled on over the way, you know, over the course of the history of this country. And in today's times, you know, we're, we're still struggling with how do we dole out forgiveness? Absolutely. Um, I, I think that <laughs> as a country that uses religion a lot, you know, we should know what forgiveness looks like because, you know, we've, as a, you know, Christian, majority Christian nation, uh, there are too many examples throughout the Bible of what true forgiveness should look like. And um, we definitely don't do that. Um, one of the things is to kind of wrap up this uh, segment here uh, and really get into kind of what you were talking about, which was how race and fear kind of played into it. Um, the Brennan Center for Justice mentioned that, you know, a lot of politicians on both sides, Democrat and Republican, um, use fear and a lot of racial rhetoric to really promote the fact that you should be afraid of minority communities. You should, you know, black and brown people should scare you They're, You know, Donald Trump, you know, amped that up, you know, coming in and, you know, taking your jobs, burning down your cities, rioting, looting. Um, just, you know, briefly, could you kind of explain how politicians um, today and, and you know, uh, kind of use that rhetoric of, you know, racial rhetoric and promoting of fear to really increase incarceration in our country? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, uh, it is a tune and it is a, um, it is a messaging point uh, that is effective, honestly. Um, and it's effective because it's largely based in fear. And when people are fearful, um, they're, you know, uh, they are willing to uh, become complacent in a lot. You know, history has shown us this. Uh, some, uh, most of the, um, the horrendous tragedies that have happened uh, amongst humanity uh, have been because there was a leader or leaders who were willing to stoke fear to justify some of the uh, inhumane actions that they were taking. I would say uh, that the same thing is happening here in the U.S., unfortunately. Um, and, you know, we have to come to a point where we realize that no matter what party or political affiliation that an elected official or someone who's running for office is subscribed to, the reality is that, you know, we need to see them take some bold stance around the issue of mass incarceration um, in this country. Uh, I would dare to say that, unfortunately, we haven't seen that on a wide scale um, for, you know, the previous four or five administrations. Um, uh, undoubtedly, there were many steps that were taken uh, to, you know, to to kind of give us some level of improvement. 
Um, but the reality is that we're far from where we need to be. And when I say improvement, for example, we all know that the, 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 the infamous statistic of, you know, the United States has 5% of the world's population approximately and approximately accounts for 25% of the world's incarcerated population. Um, and that number came, you know, that number kind of peaked in 2008. There were about 2.3 million people totally incarcerated uh, throughout the country. Uh, but we now know that that number covers around 1.8 million, which is about half a million fewer people behind bars. Um, and again, doesn't bring us to the end of mass incarceration, but we have to acknowledge that there was some level of progress made uh, over the course of you know, those 12 or so years. Um, the other thing is that you know, the federal system, the federal prison system, uh, which peaked in about 2013 at around 220,000 people in federal custody is down to about 177,000. This is pre-pandemic. Uh, and now is about 153,000 people or so. It's a 30% drop. So again, you know, we're not, we're not talking about the end of mass incarceration, but we are, but we are talking about a trend uh, that honestly we haven't seen over the past 30 years. And some of that is credit to electeds who have taken a bold stance, who have been able to allocate resources, who have moved away from the notion of tough on crime, can't do the, uh, can't do the time, don't do the crime, so on and so forth, and really have found ways to use uh, government funding to incentivize the downsizing of jails and prisons across the country. Absolutely. You know, fighting for justice is give and take. You know, you've got to, you know, take the good and keep fighting uh, for more. It's never enough. So thank you for pointing that out. Uh, listeners, we're going to take another break here. We'll come back and get into our third segment. So stick with us. We'll be right back. Would you like to contribute to our scholarship fund? Would you like to help us partner with nonprofits? Would you like to submit a topic request or maybe even appear on our show? If so, go to patron.podbean.com forward slash Black Agenda Pod. Thank you for your donation and belief in our mission. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our third segment. Remember, we're joined today by Khalil Cumberbatch. He's the Director of Strategic Partnerships for the Council on Criminal Justice. Um, Khalil, our third segment is always more about, you know, bringing us to present times and trying to lobby and transform whatever we're talking about, which is right now prison reform. So whenever I think about it, you know, it should be restorative justice. Uh, we, we do want to see people pay you know, time for their crime or whatever, but we also need to see them getting healing throughout the process. And we learned uh, through our episode, what I think it was with the Brennan Center for Justice, how um, prison is really not set up properly. You know, we should actually have a plan day one when that person is incarcerated for how we should really get them back into society. So uh, with your experience as someone who was incarcerated and someone who's actually fighting for uh, uh, prison reform, what are some of the things that prisons should really be focusing on to help inmates get back on track and get integrated back into society? Yeah, no, that's a great question, Adrian. Um, you know, from my experience, um, you know, day one of my incarceration, uh, I, at the age of, you know, 22, was getting ready to serve um, an 11-year prison sentence. And 
uh, I didn't really know how I was going to do that. I didn't know what the other end of my incarceration looked like. Um, but it was through the kind of guidance and mentorship of other men who were incarcerated, men who had been given you know, much longer sentences than I, uh, men who had served uh, longer times at that point uh, than I was given in totality. So I, I was meeting people who were serving 25, 30, 40 years and still had uh, another 10 or 15 years left on their sentence. Um, you know, those men guided and mentored me. And it was because of them that they were able to kind of point me in the direction that ultimately led me uh, to become an advocate and to become someone who's working for criminal justice reform and prison reform. Um, you know, uh, one would argue and say that, you know, the system should do that, that there should be some uh, a, a systemized process in which, you know, from the day you come in, there's someone that meets with you and someone that talks to you and guides you and gives you all the answers that you need. Um, and while I do believe that some of that needs to, some of that needs to fall on the system, I do believe that the answers are already in front of us in terms of, you know, what, wh who are viable, credible messengers, um, and who will probably have the most impact on people who are coming into the system from day one. Uh, and those are the people who they themselves are, are, are incarcerated. Uh, you know, we wouldn't, we wouldn't go to uh, someone who uh, hasn't been to med school to understand what happens in med school. We wouldn't go to someone who hasn't, you know, bought a home to talk about buying a home, right? Like, so you wouldn't go to someone who's never served a day in prison to understand what you should be doing to survive prison. Um, and, and so I think that there needs to be some level of combination. Um, but, you know, ultimately, I think that, you know, we need to think about how do we incentivize uh, the complete elimination of recidivism? As you said at the beginning of the show, if, if the goal of a prison is to, quote unquote, reach or achieve rehabilitation for someone, then why is it that, you know, for the past 30 or 40 years, our recidivism rate has hovered around the same? Now, you know, if you remove you know, technical violations, which are, you know, violations of small frivolous rules that a person who is on supervision uh, may have violated and ultimately then leads them to go back to prison. If you, if you remove those from the conversation for a little while, which are the high drivers of that, of, of, of that incarceration, of that um, recidivism rate, uh, the reality is that you're talking about um, uh, uh, convicting someone, sentencing them, to a period of prison, all too often a lengthy period of prison. And if they survive that successfully with no preparation on what happens in the real world, and then they come out, and even if they are prepared to do things like talk about their conviction, to navigate housing and employment and medical and so on and so forth, and jump through all of the hoops that supervision will put them through, it's still very difficult to answer the question of why were you incarcerated for 25 years? You must have done something so bad that it was warranted you being away for 25, 30, 40 years. And, you know, again, some of that deals with public education, uh, but some of that has to do, you know, some of that has to begin, the answer to, to that question has to begin from day one, as you said, but again, it has to be a combination of efforts between people who are incarcerated 
as credible messengers, but also with the uh, uh, backup and the support and the resources from administrations. Um, and, you know, we do see some of that. We do see that there are programs that exist in prisons across the country uh, that are really helpful for the individual. Um, but the reality is that we, we, those, those programs don't exist system-wide, unfortunately. Yeah. And, and that's one of the problems, you know, like you say, uh, it needs to start on day one. You know, we were seeing progress, but it needs to be where a solution where everyone is involved. Those who were formerly incarcerated, those who have never been there, elected officials, everybody needs to be at the table coming up with the plan. Really, it's a treatment plan, essentially, for what happens or how you get rehabilitated and get back out into society. And, um, you know, and we're like I say, we're starting to see it, I think, under you know, the Obama administration, they were pushing banning the box, you know, where it asks you on a job application, whether you have been convicted of a crime, because we know that that is a barrier for people to get back into, you know, society, because if you check that box, the likelihood of you getting that job tanks. And so that's one of the big, you know, biggest things out there is just that there are so many different barriers when you're convicted of a crime. And once you're released, that you can't do, you know, a lot of people can't vote. You can't get, you know, you may not be able to get funding for school because you have a record. So uh, it makes it extremely hard uh, to get back and become a productive, you know, you know, member of society. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the systemic barriers are real. I mean, um, uh, you know, uh, Eric Holder uh, at one point had instructed, you know, former attorney general had instructed his staff to kind of do a deep dive and understand how many um how many of these legal barriers actually is, exist uh, legally for ways for a person to be discriminated against? And they came back with 44,000 legal barriers to policy, legislation uh, that actually legally allow for a person to be uh, 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 discriminated against simply and solely in many cases because of a criminal conviction. And we're not even talking about a felony conviction. We're talking about a simple criminal conviction, the pleading guilty to a crime uh, to avoid jail sentence, to just get a fine and walk away. Uh, most people who have taken that, there is some way for them to be discriminated against simply because of that. And so those systemic barriers really do exist. But you know, again, if we were to eliminate all of those, if we were to tomorrow legislate and you know, policy our way out of all of those, you know, we still have a huge amount of work to do around public education to educate someone and say, look, if this person is looking to be an employee, uh, the, 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 the research and the data shows us that that person's conviction all too often has almost nothing to do with the performance that they will give you as an employee. Same thing with housing, same thing with access to benefits. Um, and again, you know, we, we, we're, we are many years away from that, um, but we are getting better and better at trying to, you know, policy and legislate our way back to zero, which is to eliminate some of those systemic barriers. Yeah, and, and that's one of the dangers and worries, too. Um, hopefully we can get those challenges. One last question here um, is that in this time, you know, last year we had the protests after George Floyd, and we saw essentially what was a white lash to the, the protest was that you saw states enacting all kinds of bills trying to criminalize essentially protesting. You know, you got bills where they can run over people, you know, in the street, or they can, you know, 
convict you for protesting or, or rioting as they're trying to name it. So, and we've seen that rhetoric picked up by Donald Trump trying to get really again kind of that same rhetoric of let's be tough on crime, stop these rioters, you know, trying to lump in Antifa with Black Lives Matter. So just this heavy-handed response to the protests that we saw last year. Just quickly, do you kind of get the sense after watching what kind of transpired in 2020? Do you get the sense that while we have made progress, that the country is still having a hard time not reverting back to the old way of doing things where when you see someone doing something wrong, like looting or rioting, that you have to come with this heavy handed approach and punish them, you know, to the umpteenth degree? Yeah, I mean, I think that the demonstrations that happened um, last year uh, following the murder of George of George Floyd um, and Breonna Taylor and others, um, you know, really kind of uh, exposed what people in communities of color and low-income communities across the country have known for quite some time, which is that, um, you know, uh, this heavy militarization of policing, local policing, coupled with this notion of, um, you know, race and gender being one of the kind of key uh, reasons for a person's criminality, couple that with fear-stoking and, you know, uh, bad media coverage, uh, you know, kind of leads us to have the average Joe and Jane citizen saying to themselves, if a person is out there and if they are protesting, uh, that's a crime. Uh, but if it definitely turns into rioting uh, because of uh, frustration and because of a lack of response and a lack of accountability, um, then that person needs to be treated as a criminal you know, that's not a new narrative for this country. I mean, we saw that, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. um, And one would even argue and say that we've seen that throughout uh, the course of this country. Um, What I think is important for folks to um, think about is, you know, those those, uh, demonstrations were at the heart of it all too often about some level of accountability for our law enforcement entities. Um, The idea that someone can lean on someone's neck for eight minutes, eight plus minutes and murder that person in broad daylight and think simply because they wear a badge is, uh, is a carte blanche explanation of why this person was murdered um, is one that drove this narrative across the country that, as you said, uh, you know, Devin, that uh, there were many places across the country that were enacting legislation to not only criminalize protests, but they were enacting legislation to also offer some level of police accountability. However, uh, I would say that many of the reforms that are being discussed and some that are even passed uh, really don't get to the heart of the problem around police accountability. And so I think that, you know, we need to hold close to that, which is that, um, you know, in order to have true systemic change, yes, we need to do protests and yes, we need to get out there. Um, but we also need to be coordinated as advocates to make sure that the ultimate outcome actually does bring us the kind of justification that we are looking for, which is ultimately to change something on a systemic level. Uh, you know, the Council on Criminal Justice, um, you know, we launched the policing task force. And, you know, this was obviously on the back end of 
George Floyd's murder, as well as Breonna Taylor. Um, and the question to the task force was, uh, which reforms that are being enacted and some that have already been enacted, what do they actually yield us? What do they actually bring? What outcomes are they actually giving? Um, and so, for example, you know, in response to George Floyd's murder, many, many municipalities across the country and some states uh, went to ban uh, 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 chokeholds or carotid holds, you know, they basically restricting the airway in any way during a police encounter. They made that illegal and punishment, uh, uh, and a punishment, um, by a conviction, ultimately potential prison sentence. Um, and, uh, while that is undoubtedly needed, we don't want chokeholds. Um, what we learned from the data and the research is that uh, people who die at the hands of police because of chokeholds and carotid restrictive holds um, are less than 1%. And in fact, people who die uh, largely at the hands of police are all too often about 30% because of some uh, a, a vehicular accident that kind of comes about, um, whether that's through a police chase or not. Um, and so if we really want you know, true systemic change, we need to transform that anger and that frustration and that want for some level of accountability and ask for changes and push for changes uh, that would ha- that would lead to some true level of systemic change. Um, and I think that you know, as advocates, as a community, as a society, uh, we, we 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 all have a long way to go. Um, but but we really do need to work together to make sure that the moments that we have to enact true systemic change, that we don't lose them and that we're not given some superficial win uh, to kind of justify, um, you know, some of the other actions that will take place. For example, criminalizing protests uh, simply because people were frustrated and they wanted some level of accountability. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I'm glad you said that, um, especially considering it seems like, you know, politicians are always putting band-aids on situations and just focusing on the the chokehold seems like more like a band-aid rather than focusing on more of, like you said, the police chasing and other things. But uh, we're not going to hold you too much longer. We're going to take one more break. When we come back, we just want to get your final message, Khalil, your last thoughts, just to kind of wrap up our episode. So listeners, stick with us. We'll come right back with our final message. Thank you for listening to the Black Agenda Podcast. We appreciate your support and we ask that you like, share, and follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. That's at Black Agenda Pod. Let's get back to the show. All right, listeners, welcome back. Let's get into our final message here. Remember, we're joined today by Khalil A. Cumberbatch, Director of Strategic Partnerships for the Council on Criminal Justice. So, Khalil, for your final message, you know, just to kind of set the stage, um, one thing that we've discussed is the fact that the societal view of prisons and inmates definitely needs to change. Um, We know that, you know, there are some hardcore criminals, uh, but there are a lot of uh, people who are in prison due to nonviolent crimes, yet society does not want to give anybody a fair chance 
Um, we have to acknowledge that people do make mistakes. Sometimes they're dealt to bad hands and some people just make awful decisions. Um, but these decisions shouldn't be something that sticks with that person for the rest of their lives, just like you were granted a second chance and you're doing amazing things now. So, Khalil, uh, for someone, like I said, who was informally incarcerated and now is actually fighting for change on the other side, um, leave us with a theme that speaks of forgiveness and second chances and why we must work to strengthen our prison system in a more equitable fashion. Yeah, thank you again, Adrian and Devin, um, for having this conversation and for making time on your podcast to uh, enlighten some of your listeners and hopefully some of their families and their communities. Um, Because the issue of mass incarceration, as I mentioned, although um, we are trending downwards and we've reached um, uh, lows in terms of prison population that we haven't seen for quite some time, uh, we have a very long way to go uh, to the day that we say that we've eliminated mass incarceration. Um, And what we have to do to reach that goal is to acknowledge uh, on a very basic level that if someone commits a crime or does an act that is deemed to be criminal, uh, especially if that crime has led to the harm of someone else, and maybe that crime has led to the taking of life of someone else, we can't simply say that for those people, they have to go away forever. But for everyone else, we have to somehow find second, third, and fourth chances. And the reason I say that is because if we can grapple with and solve how we respond to some of the more violent charges and crimes that are happening in this country, and if we solve that, then it will be much easier to extend some level of grace and forgiveness and uh, graciousness, honestly, and how we maintain a person's humanity throughout their entire interaction with the criminal justice system. Um, I think that COVID-19 has uh, shown us many, many uh, flaws that existed in this country uh, for quite some time. I think communities of color have known for a a very long time that racial disparities exist uh, within healthcare and within school and within Uh, other public sectors. Uh, But COVID-19 really exacerbated that and and, and really exposed an underbelly that I think many people in their everyday rigmarole of life don't understand. And I would urge us that we use that momentum, we use that moment uh, to really do some deep dives into some of the social ills that exist. And some of them are the drivers of crime. And some of them are the drivers of the violence that we're seeing happening in certain uh, cities and municipalities across the country. If we don't do that, we're going to lose our moments to uh, kind of steer course to one, as you said, Adrian, is more equitable, one that is more fair, one that is more just, and one that is, that is again, honestly, just simply acknowledging the humanity of someone even when that person doesn't see the humanity themselves. Um, And then lastly, I'll just say that, um, you know, we have to talk about solutions. And I know, you know, we could talk about this issue for the next four hours and not touch on on all of the issues that uh, lead to incarceration, that come from incarceration, and definitely not talk about all of the solutions in depth about 
uh, ways that we can uh, correct our incarceration rate. But I would leave the listeners with this one last tidbit. Um, one of the simplest ways for us to begin to uh, acknowledge that person's humanity, to acknowledge that, uh, that, that there are human beings that are in prisons and jails across this country, and that simply because they are a human being, they should not be allowed to be exposed to uh, subhumane conditions. As you mentioned, Devin, one of the prisons that got a huge amount of media attention um, last year was Parchment Prison that, uh, you know, we saw some horrendous conditions that existed there that were allowed to exist there until public attention was brought to it. I would argue and say that there is other parchments that exist across this country. So one of the simplest ways to acknowledge the humanity is by the language that we choose to describe the people that we are talking about. And one of my mentors uh, and, and one of the groundbreakers around criminal justice reform, Eddie Ellis himself, uh, had coined the phrase formerly incarcerated. And the reason he said that was because uh, we simply cannot continue to use the labels given to us by the same system that we are here to critique to describe the people that we are here to represent. And the system gives us the labels inmate, prisoner, felon, convict. And we must change those labels to at least acknowledge the humanity of the individual, because then we understand that we're talking about human beings. And in that kind of language change, we can then begin to talk about viable solutions that at the center of it, acknowledge that these are human beings. And as a human being, we are innately flawed. And if you exacerbate that because of trauma and other life experiences, then we can kind of begin to understand why some people act and display behavior in the way that they do. So I would urge our listeners, your listeners, to think about the language that they use, use more human-centered language, people who are incarcerated, men who are incarcerated, women who are incarcerated, children who are incarcerated, uh, because that is one way to push back on this kind of innate language that is given to us uh, in this innate uh, ideological understanding that is given to us that people who are incarcerated are somehow less than human. And so therefore we can justify a 40 year prison sentence or a 50 year prison sentence or a life without parole or subject them to subhumane conditions during that incarceration. So thank you again, you know, Adrian and Devin, uh, really hope that this conversation was helpful to your listeners. No, it, it absolutely is. And it's helpful to both me and Adrian just to hear your perspective and your expertise on the topic. It's a, a very important conversation you know, that a lot of people need to have. And, and in, you know, like, you, like you say, we're making progress, but the country, obviously, after last year, it, it exposed that we still have a very long way to go in, in how we treat each other, but also how our criminal justice system is doling out punishment and how we're, after they get that punishment, how they're you know, treated in, in prisons. And they're, they're still people. You know, I think in a lot of ways we treat the animals in the country better than we treat our, you know, our incarcerated individuals, you know. And so uh, but I thank you for for laying it out there and also giving us some things to, that we can do and how we refer to people who used to be in prison is not just a criminal or a felon, but they're formerly incarcerated and they need resources to help them get reacclimated into society. So um, I just appreciate your your perspective and for you giving us your time and letting our listeners know, you know, what needs to be done to fix this problem. Yeah. And the uh, only thing I wanted to add is uh, I really appreciate, Claire, how you um, wrapped up with talking about the humanity 
Um, because I think that that's really an important thing, because as we look at 2021, um, everything that we're talking about seems to be stemming around civil rights and human rights issues and just, you know, showing everybody that we're all humans. You know, we, some of us might make mistakes that we may deem worse than others, but we're still humans at the end of the day and we have to treat each other as such. So definitely appreciate what you've told us. Um, as, as someone who looks to go in politics and Dev and I look to have a lobbying group, we need people like you always educating us and educating the population on what we need to be taken care of. So listeners, remember, you've been uh, listening to Khalil A. Cumberbatch. He's the director of strategic partnerships for the Council on Criminal Justice. Khalil, uh, really, really thankful to have you on. We appreciate you being on the show. Um, listeners, we're going to give you one more break. Uh, Dev and I, we're going to come back solo uh, and give you the ending. So stick with us. We'll be right back. You have been listening to the Black Agenda podcast hosted by Adrian Guest and Devin Dito. If you enjoy listening to the show, let the host know by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash black agenda pod and give a few dollars after all the black agenda podcast is supported by listeners like you let's get back to the show all right welcome back listeners so as always we like to leave you with giving you a look forward as to what is upcoming on the podcast um so next stop for our regular episodes is going to be uh, coming out on Tuesday, September 7th, uh, that episode is going to be called Shock in the Labor Market. And that shock we're talking about is really called the Great Resignation. So right now we're seeing a wave of resignations. A lot of people are quitting their jobs, trying to switch careers or start their own businesses on the side. But what you're really seeing is workers are taking back their power here in the labor market. We've seen a real shift here. And so um, we're going to dig into exactly why why this is happening, what it means for workers going forward. So make sure you tune in for that. That episode is going to be very, very good. Again, coming out Tuesday, September 7th is called Shock in the Labor Market. We're going to be discussing the Great Resignation. And then our next uh, weekly roundup is going to be weekly roundup number 12. Uh, that's going to be coming out uh, Saturday, September 7th. Again, that's our chance to bring you all the news from the past week. So make sure you tune in for that so you can get your news in a nice, neat package here uh, on the Black Agenda. Uh, and so, again, uh, we have two great episodes coming up. But before we go, we always like to let you know you can help us out, not just by listening and downloading the podcast, but there are some other ways you can help us out. Uh, and Adrian's going to let you know how you can do that. Absolutely, Devin. Um, it's important to download and share and like and follow us listeners, but that money is is also equally important, honestly, because um, Devin and I, we don't want to just bring you the news. We don't want to just talk to great guests and have awesome conversations, but we also want to have an organization, have a movement, have things that are actually going to transform the communities. We've learned so many different things from the experts and the leaders that we've talked to over the three seasons that we've been doing this, that we really want to transform this into an actual organization that's going to be able to do something in the communities that we're advocating for. With doing that, we need money. Um, great ideas have to have money to fund those. And the best thing to do is just go to our website, blackagendapod.com. 
click on that donate tab, start by giving a dollar, escalate it from there. We would love to have you as a monthly patron. We've got a lot of great gifts and incentives for uh, a lot of great gifts and incentives for you. So that way, not only do you give to help our mission, but you can give and get something in return. Also, we like to highlight our charity of the month. And for the month of August, we have selected the, the organization Choose 180. Choose 180 transforms the lives of youth and young adults by partnering with institutional leaders, connecting them with community, empowering them with choice, and teaching them the skills necessary to avoid engagement with the criminal legal system. Choose 180 envisions a future where youthful behavior is decriminalized and young people are offered restorative practices in lieu of traditional prosecution. In place of the school-to-prison pipeline, a community will exist to help young people realize their potential and provide them with the tools necessary to achieve their goals. We figured since uh, August is kind of like back to school month and this organization is talking about youth and young adults, awesome, awesome opportunity to kind of highlight them. So go to their website, choose180.org, go to our website, blackagendapod.com and click that donate tab and start giving. Yeah. So make sure you check out that organization again, another great organization, um, that we're deciding to highlight this month. And so, uh, again, so before we go, we like to let you know you can like, share, and follow us on social media. You really should already be doing that. But if you aren't, just in case, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Black Agenda Pod is our handle. So make sure you go ahead, pull your phone out, and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Black Agenda Pod. You can also find us on YouTube. Just go to YouTube and search the Black Agenda Podcast, and you'll find us. And our catalog has a lot of great content. We have 10 interviews with HBCUs. We also have conversations about critical race theory, uh, mandatory voting, and even you know things about the vaccine. So make sure you go through and listen to some of that. It's some really great content there. Um, and also, uh, again, make sure you follow us. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at Black Agenda Pod, and then on YouTube, just search the Black Agenda podcast. And so, again, so uh, me and Adrian enjoy bringing you the news from this week. And we'll be back next Saturday for more news. And we'll be back on Tuesday uh, to be talking about the shock in the labor market. So, again, for me and Adrian, we thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time.